0: Hey, friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast, where each week we talk about four rhythms that help you reduce stress and anxiety and take charge of your emotional health. Rest, restore, connect, create. Welcome back. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Gabe. And it's fall, Gabe. It's I beautiful. Know. I hope it's cool and a little crisp, maybe wherever you're listening.
1: I know everybody's environment's a little different, but I for know. us in Tennessee, it is feeling like the most perfect of weeks. And yes. we're enjoying all that comes with the fall. We're
0: wearing a quilted vest right now, Gabe, and I love it. It's just jacket weather I love but the thing is the layering. You gotta unlayer. You know, like you start in the morning and then by noon you're kind of like <laughs> needing a T shirt. <laughs>
1: That's right. Well, it's been a fun last week because we experienced all of you guys jumping in with us on this conversation about saying yes and what it's going to look like in your own life as we go throughout the fall.
0: Yeah. So a thousand of you already have downloaded the RebeccaLyons.com slash live free conversation guide. So that means we're all going to kick this off October 1, 52 Days to Let Go and Live Free. So we're going through Surrendered guests together. And if you haven't got the book, you can grab it at RebeccaLyons.com because what it is, is just these 52 short essays, devotionals, scripture, and a couple reflection questions, but we thought— the way to transformation is in community. And so not only going through this in your own personal time, your quiet time in the morning, but having those reflections with a friend or a group, a small group. And so going through this together is what I'm so excited about.
1: Yeah, and you can get that guide at rebeccalinescom slash livefree. Now, we're excited today because we're doing our Say Yes season, and it's brought to you by Agape International Missions. And one of the cool things they're doing with the Surrendered Yes book is they're giving it to you for free. Rebecca's going to sign it. And you're going to get a free book if you sign up to be a donor for them at the link in our show notes that allows you to support their incredible work around the world. We're grateful for them. And our guest today on the Say Yes series is none other than Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's an incredible psychiatrist, author, and just an incredible voice Mm -hmm. of reason and calm and emotional health in the midst of a very chaotic season.
0: And those of you who've been tuning in for weeks and months and years to this podcast understand that my passion is about faith and science coming together around the emotional, spiritual, relational health in the church. And so sometimes we see a lot of weight on the science side, or we see a lot of weight on the faith side. But what I understand is that God, who is our Creator, is also the master scientist, that He made our brains. He actually understands what a chemical imbalance is. He understands where neurosis begins and where OCD and all these things. And so to me, it's like, let's integrate faith and science in everything we do. And Kurt is a follower of Jesus. And all his books talk so much about the brain and so much about Jesus that he is the guy that I look to for a lot of source in the things that I'm learning.
1: And this podcast is just a little bit of a glimpse of what's taking place here in Franklin, November 18 and 19, when we host our next emotional health retreat for a very limited group of people who will come together and actually have Kurt with us over two days talking about the rhythms, talking about renewal, and really working on our own emotional health in the midst of a season where so many people— I know are challenged by this, and and people are looking for you as a leader or as a listener to this for hope, for guidance, and sometimes you're not quite sure how to address it. And that's what we want to work on when we're together for two days this fall.
0: Yeah, so for those of you who've been around, we did our first one with Kurt Thompson last fall here at the Harpeth Hotel in downtown Franklin, and coming off of several months of COVID and quarantine, it sold out very quickly because a lot of us were going, hey, we really want to recenter our lives around what is true because there's a tsunami of fear, and how do we separate ourselves from that? And so even as hosting that with you, Gabe, I came away from that weekend of connection and belonging and and understanding what goes God that God holds us and He holds all things together. So we decided from there we were going to do this every year because to me I would I would go to this even if I wasn't hosting it because it was that life giving for me. And so if you're listening today and here we are now 18 months in to a, like just a, a reset, a different look of where things are, and you're still feeling kind of fearful or. Like there's just still a lot of chaos, some confusion, some unknown. I'm just reminded of the words of Jesus that says, "Hey, come get away with me, and you'll recover your life, and you'll find rest for your soul." And I look at this retreat like that. I look at this for those of you who need to like get away, get away, like tune out the noise, the chaos, the confusion. Just come with a friend and and get away. Pause, reflect, examine the heart. Our goal is that we send you back home with soul rest. There's a soul care, like a deep inner ache a lot of us are carrying. And we don't have language for it, but part of it is like we need to be seen and known and loved. Yeah. And God is the one who will remind us of what is true and how He holds us in this place. And I, my, my prayer is that you'd leave propelled with renewed passion and vigor for what really is the most important that you're putting your hands to. And just a reminder of that, I think, is so crucial.
1: Yeah. And you can learn all about this retreat and all the details, the schedule, how it will work at rebeccalions.com slash EH retreat. So the rebeccalions.com slash EH retreat. And Rebecca, what I'm excited about, because I remember this well last year, it's it's the Thursday, Friday before the Thanksgiving holiday. It's, yeah, a, it's a moment week. where the year feels like for a lot of people— it's starting to slow down families together that next week we head into that christmas season and winter beginning in a slow period and sometimes a darker period for a lot of people literally mm-hmm. the sun stops shining as right? long during the day in the right. us it it starts to change the dynamics of of where we're going and to enter into that season when your kids are looking at you maybe your teenagers your friends your family your spouse and you're really wanting to, in a healthy way, lead them towards God's design for their health and their approach and their mental um, approach and strength as we walk through that season. It becomes so important and so critical. So we would love for you to join us at rebeccalionscom slash EHretreat. And now let's listen to Kurt Thompson discuss with Rebecca the soul of desire, discovering the neuroscience of longing, beauty, and community.
0: Kurt Thompson, (laughs) the man, the myth, the legend is here again. to say
2: that. Glad to be talking with you. It's a a great thing for my day.
0: We're so thrilled to have you. And people who have been a part of this podcast for a while have heard me reference you or quote you or just gush. But either way, we're glad you're back. Um, We're so excited to be co-hosting our second annual emotional health retreat in November here Mm -hmm. again in our lovely little historic Franklin. So we'll talk more about that later. But I just want to jump into your new book, The Soul of Desire. Because you know how books just come to you at the right time. They've been sitting on your shelf, they're just looking cute. And then someday, one day, you're like, I really have been wanting to read this. I think I'm supposed to read this right now. And I basically read it six months ago and just basically cried through it. And I think you, like, you do so well, is you give language to like the inner ache and the. The tension that a lot of us carry but don't have words for and often try to chronically push it down and just continue to press forward and persevere and endure. And yet really what we're longing for is healing. And you cannot heal what is hidden. So I'm so thankful for your work in that. And I'm so thankful for your work that's now new, The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. So let's jump right in.
2: Sure. Let's go.
0: So I'd love to start on um, page 12. You have a quote here. Because really, you're asking the reader, first thing, what do you really want? And that is the hardest question to answer, I think. I mean we can, we have like a, you know immediate gratification and everything on a surface level but what is the longing what is the deep desire and you you summarize it up here in this quote you said our hearts minds and souls most desperately want to love and be loved by real people in real time and space not the fantasized virtual people who make up the vast majority of our mental narratives you know the ones the imagined stories we tell of Every waking hour that either demonize or idealize our friend or enemy, our spouse or child, as well as a story we tell about ourselves, that is laden with shame and distorts our perspective, making it difficult to receive that integrated way to the wild, deep love of God. We want all of that in an embodied fashion, real. It needs to have color and sound and a pulse. If we can't feel it in our bones and blood, there's little use pursuing it any further. Talk about the embodiment— I mean, to me, that has been the catalytic shift between an idea and actual transformation.
2: Uh, you, you know, we are we are a people of the Bible, uh, and we are also a people of you know modern day North America. And the challenge is that so much of our engagement with the Bible is that we read it and we experience it through the part of our mind that does a lot of work with logic and linear thinking and so forth and so on. We might touch on emotion, but we fail to recognize that the Bible itself says that God began with mud. He took mud from the ground and he breathed the breath of life into it. He didn't, like, take his own breath and then toss mud in the air in the hope that it stuck. And we begin with bodies. Everything that we experience, as the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar points out, that Before we think anything, we have to have a physical encounter with it. And we have pretty effectively moved most of our understanding and experience of faith and of God, therefore, into this realm of abstraction. And we're not really even aware that we're doing it. We hear it, but it's abstracted in pulpits. It's abstracted in in all kinds of things. Now, we have other things that, you know, we do that invite our bodies to the party. You know, we have games for our youth groups But when's the last time that, you know, you came to a worship service and the pastor said, today we're going to have, we're going to play. Right. We're going to play as part of our worship. Because Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And little children are all the time engaged with their bodies long before they are thinking with their minds. And so if I, we like to say, look, if something is, if I don't feel something in my chest— It has not yet become fully real to me. The fully real literally must be something that I can get my hands around, that I can smell it, that I can taste it, that I feel it in the way that my pulse quickens or lowers because I'm now more tranquil because someone has looked at me with compassion. And before I know that I feel better emotionally, that better feeling happens in my body. And so when we talk about the gospel, you know, so often Jesus was doing things in embodied fashion. He asks a man in the synagogue to stick out his withered hand. He comes to a man in John 9 who's blind, and he doesn't even ask for his permission, right? There's no signed consent form here. He just slaps mud on his face. And so we have to recognize that God came as a body in Jesus. He didn't speak from some voice on high. It wasn't an idea about crucifixion and resurrection. It was an embodied thing and he wants our bodies to be enlivened by his spirit in order to create beauty and goodness in the world and that creative act can't be limited to things that i think.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people think of their trauma or their anxiety or their depression or their panic attacks. It's it's something that needs fixed. And so we need. We want to treat the the symptom. We want to treat the acting out of our body, and then all of a sudden, there's this faith piece that people aren't sure how to invite God into that. And I really love to dig into that today because I feel a personal burden in my 11 years of walking this healing journey out. How the integration of faith and science has been critical. Where you sometimes see a wellness community that could be largely agnostic or partially agnostic, and God is optional or faith is optional because it's about practices and disciplines and rhythms and things that are very embodied. But um, where's the the breakdown in that, where if the Word itself became flesh and dwelt among us, that we don't just pray about getting well, we act as if we want to get well— Um, Like when Jesus asks the man, do you want to be well? Because he knew that meant on the mat, he would have to stand up and he would have to actually roll up that mat and live out an embodied healing journey that, that was not passive but very active. What would you say to somebody who says, I just can't reconcile these two things in the same space? Can you speak to that tension that I think sits out there right now?
2: I think the first thing that's important for us to do, Rebecca, is to recognize the world that we live in. And so we live in a world in which over the last four to five hundred years, we have come to believe rather implicitly. We're not taught this explicitly in junior high or high school or college, but we just it's like, you know, the Kool-Aid that we're drinking. It's the air that we're breathing. This notion that the way we know things, the way we know anything as it turns out, to put it most succinctly, is through the scientific method. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that even as you and I are having this conversation, when people think about their faith or think about their science, we are comparing things, and the whole notion of I'm going to be the one who sits here and contemplates these things that are outside of me, I have faith over here, I have science over here, and I'm going to sit and I'm going to analyze and I'm going to judge and I'm going to determine how I know which of these are true or how do we bring them together. There is a sense in which I'm the investigator and I'm the one who's the final authority on determining what these things are really true. Now, here's the thing. We don't know that this is what we're doing, but we do this with everything, including Jesus. Now, what's so striking about this is that when you actually wade into neuroscience itself, when you look at neuroscience, when you look at attachment research, for example, when you look at the memory and the narrative science of the brain, you discover that to know things... In the way that the brain enables us to know things actually depends a great deal on a different way of knowing. I don't just come to know things because I sit here and I look at the evidence, the evidence of science and the evidence of faith, which, of course, is like what a good scientist would do. But that's how we think that we're going to know things. We're going to look at all the data we think this about everything, not just about science and faith, like whether or not I'm going like, to get these, this, this, this set of curtains for my house, whether or not we're going to parent these children this way, which school we're going to send them to. We live in the mindset of a scientist. But interestingly enough, St. Paul says to us, the one who loves God is known by God. He doesn't say the one who loves God knows God. The one who loves God is known by God. And then when we look at the neuroscience of attachment research, we come to discover that there are certain things that I can know, Rebecca, only if you are asking me the questions, not if I'm asking the questions. So if you ask me the questions, so Kurt, tell me what it was like growing up in your house. And I say, well... I had two parents who loved me well, and they were both believers. Um, And uh, I had a fairly like lovely, unremarkable childhood. And then you get, but then you you start to press into that and you say, well, tell me more about what it was like with your dad and before you know it, like I'm discovering, well, gosh, as it turns out, my dad didn't ask me really very many, if any questions about my inner life where all of my worst nightmares were taking place. Right. And that's something that I didn't know I didn't know until you, called it out. Ask me.
0: You're talking about all these rhythms, connect, create, restore all these rhythms. But how are we connecting the dots from longing to beauty to creativity?
2: So this gets back to what we were just talking about, this notion of faith and science and so forth. And we come to discover that the science itself tells us at the end of the day, that what we really are in the middle of is a grand story, whether we know it or not. And it is the story that builds the context. In what story do we believe that we're living? And the story that the gospel would tell us is that we are a people who've been created as people of longing. This is who we are. We are a people of great desire. It is neurobiologically driven in us with our physical appetites right from the get-go. And we go for longing. We go from longing for milk and food and shelter to longing for connection with my peer group, to longing to go to college, to longing to join the Marines, to longing to be married, to have children, all these things that I long for. This notion that then we discover that my longing to do all this is first grounded in my deep longing to be known by you. And for you to be known by me, I want to do this, but I don't long to do this full stop. I long to be known in order for us then to collaboratively create beauty in the world. And this beauty that we create, the biblical narrative would suggest it's not just something that I'm creating and also then bearing my maker's image, but it is something that I'm actually becoming. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
2: not just something that I'm making.
0: Right. The making becomes us.
2: I couldn't say it any better. Mm -hmm. We get the idea of creating beauty in the world, but the way we tend to do it is we create beauty and we see it as a luxury, and then we like put it in a museum. And so you have to go someplace. You don't look for beauty in the average every day, let alone expecting to find beauty to emerge or expecting to create beauty in the places that are our worst nightmares. And the gospel comes along and says, Good Friday is all about going to wherever hell is on earth. And it is in that very place that we're going to create an outpost of beauty and goodness to which the world will look and say, this is where God lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the more beautiful literary examples of this is in The Great Divorce with C.S. Lewis in the opening chapter of the book, where hell was a place where people were building their houses farther and farther from each other over the course of time. And what we find then is that we we, do—we isolate parts of ourselves from other parts of ourselves, and we certainly isolate parts of ourselves from others that we don't want ourselves or others to see or to know. And this, of course, with trauma— There's a certain shattering and then a distanced, isolating process that takes place with all of these parts of us that we then have to burn energy to contain. And that is energy that we then do not have available to create the beauty that God has has intended for us to create from before the foundation of the world. And so when Jesus comes to Peter in John 21 and says, Do you love me? What he's really getting at is the part of peter that is so ashamed that all peter can see is that my life is i guess going to be about going back to fishing which is what he was doing he has a hard time imagining the beauty of being a fisher of men but jesus comes to find him in the way that i would suggest that we only when we allow others to come to find the parts of us that we hate the most but that they can see is beauty waiting to emerge and we experience what it means to become artifacts of beauty in the world directly out of the places that we hate the most, and then we become Jesus' collaborators in going and doing the same, finding those same places of carnage in others and saying, no, I'm not here to see you as the problem. I'm here to ask you What's the next artifact of beauty that you and God and I can make together?
0: Yeah, I, I quote you often where you say, "When we're seen and known and loved in the absence of shame, we can create beautiful things." Mm-hmm. And so, I'd love to talk um, directly to the person who has where desire has been quenched. Um, there has been a a study out since COVID began um, of a of just a broad general brush, a sweep, a societal sweep of languishing. Which is just this listless, purposelessness, <laughs> passionless—all the lesse[s]. Um, and part of that is just quarantine, and part of that is just us shutting ourselves down. Those places that hurt, and like you said, so all the and mental energy required to stay isolated and 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 alone. But let's talk about that languishing or that purposelessness. Speak to the things. What are the specific things that quench desire?
2: In the garden, we pay a lot of attention to the first couple eating fruit without recognizing that the wounding began long before that in the conversation and that the eating of the fruit in many respects was a coping strategy for what was taking place in the conversation between the serpent and the woman and even between the serpent and the man in his silence, but his observation of what was going on. And so the languishing begins in many respects with wounds. And the quelching of desire that we, we truncate that, we push that below, has everything to do with our shame and our fear. You don't have to train a child to want things. Children come into the world wanting stuff, and it's not until they begin to attach their desire to anxiety that their desire begins to shrink When you bring children into a learning environment, like like young children, right, preschoolers, kindergartners, you don't really have to do much to get them to be eager or interested in whatever the environment provides for them. You give them a sheet of paper and crayons and they just get it and go. But somewhere along the way in our educational processes and in our parenting processes, we find ways, not intentionally, we're not explicitly trying to think, oh gosh, I'm trying, I hope my kid is more anxious by the end of the day than he is now. But what we are ending up doing is we are attaching anxiety in ways that intentionally or not end up happening in such a way that children have to rather non-consciously become more calculating in the risks that they take when their desire comes to the forefront. And so by the time we get to John one thirty eight, and Jesus asks the, the, the disciples of John the Baptist, what do you want? Of course, their response is not a straightforward, we want to be with you and we want what you want. Like, no, we're going to kind of cautiously approach this. And that approach is going to be, where are you staying? There is this sense in which if God were to ask me, Kurt, what do you want? I would probably want to say, well, could you please just give me whatever, what's the right answer to this question? And that's what I'll tell you. Because at some level, My desire has become so entangled with shame and fear that is related to old, unresolved wounds that my desire has now become truncated.
0: Yeah. Why is it that we have a hard time naming that? Like when you say attaching our our desire to anxiety, what does that mean? Does that mean our, our desire now is just wanting relief, maybe? Maybe wanting relief from anxiety or wanting a coping way because i feel like when i'm not in a good place my petitions to god are more like can you lift this <laughs> is that what you mean by attaching to anxiety
2: what i mean by that is we've all had experiences in which we have without thinking about it we have offered ourselves in a moment of creativity in all kinds of ways you're you're in a you're at a cocktail party and you're in a conversation with someone and two other people and you make a comment and the comment is kind of like ignored Well, what are you doing in that moment? You're actually creating, you are adding to, you are a co-creator of a conversation in that moment. Now, of course, The three of you, y'all aren't sitting around thinking like, gosh, this is great being artists of a conversation. Like You're not thinking that. But from a brain standpoint, this is exactly what you're doing. But you offer something and it's ignored. And that is an act of shame. And that offering of creativity, just like if you're in third grade and you try something and the teacher or the classmate or the whatever offers you shame in response to it. Your brainstem and your amygdala are going to register that as like, oh, the next time you think about offering something creatively, which of course is an act of vulnerability, you're going to think twice about that. And if you practice that enough, you stop thinking about being creative because you get really, really good at keeping it under wraps because it's too dangerous.
0: Right, because there's a fear of rejection.
2: Of course. And we do this in ways that we have become so practiced at it that we don't even know that we're doing it. And so, you know, in our, in our practice, we ask patients now, or we are making it a practice to say, not just what are you, what is your problem or what are, what are your symptoms? We, we ask those questions, of course, but we eventually really want to get to the question, what really is the next new artifact of beauty that you want to create with God, whether that's in your marriage or that's with your children, your relationships, your work, wherever this happens to be. And of course, when people first hear us ask this question, they think we're a little nuts.
0: Yeah, they're like, just fix me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. And it is a question, the answer to which requires great risk.
0: Right. Okay, so let's talk about our kids. Let's talk about kids are being raised more in a consumption culture than a creating culture. And how do they go from like, no, I really want to just make it. To going okay, I'm I'll passively watch watch this. Do you think it's rejection, or do you think it was just um, entertainment and like that amusing ourselves to death idea of where we just consume and so we therefore don't create?
2: Well, so I'm gonna I, I'm gonna take a page out of your book, and uh, you know I I just I love the way you have developed a model that enables people to imagine their life as rhythmic beings, because that in fact is who we are. We are made as beings who live rhythmically in the world. And it's important to know that everything, like most of what enables me to be a rhythmic being is my embodied self, my gait, my pulse, my breathing rate, my sleeping and waking, all the things that are embodied in that sense. And then I would say the way that we get to this requires an embodied engagement. It doesn't begin by first explaining things. Now, it doesn't mean that explaining things is unhelpful because that helps us understand why we would do the following. And the following would be, I would say, and this is really hard in our culture, but at the very least, we would say, look, um, the next time that you're going to go on vacation, find a way to be on vacation for more than seven days. I know this is not easy. And make sure that you have no devices, any way, shape, or form. And you will find that after it's going to, there's going to, I mean, you, if you've done this, you know this, there's going to be a withdrawal period of time where people are going to be irritable and they're going to be up, like, I don't know what to do without my phone and so forth and so on. And then there will come a time when everybody will begin to discover that they actually have bodies in ways that they didn't even know that their bodies existed. Because they will sense things, they will see things, they will taste things, they will feel things that heretofore, they weren't paying attention to because they were paying attention to other things that are in the ether that, at the end of the day, matter so very little in our lives.
0: You can't even give room to create if you don't even know your body parts work, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, like my hands. Right. I can actually work with my actual hands, not just my thumb or my, a double tap here. So do you think um, for people who have languished and they've lost their passion— would you prescribe, if I were sitting in front of you and I had three minutes for you to fix me, would you prescribe that they remove as best they can the things that numb them out?
2: Well, I'll answer that uh, with this reflection. Last week, I had the opportunity to be at a retreat center uh, in which, as I said, I've said to others uh, since then, the sheer beauty of the natural surroundings coupled with the beauty of the architectural design held the work that was to be done in that retreat center to do this. So when you ask the question, if you had, I would say like, if I had three minutes, I'd say, yeah, um, uh, three minutes is probably, I mean, uh, th- this of course is part of the thing, right? Like I'd like, can, I, can you do this in three minutes? Yeah. But what I would say in that three minutes, I would say anything that you are doing on purpose every day to slow your pace and to allow your body to actually be your body whether that's going for a walk and it doesn't have to be a power walk, but it's going to go for a walk. And then we're going to take five of that minutes of your walk and you're going to pause and you're going to encounter nature in some way, shape or form that of course, you know, you can alert your neighbors that like, this is what I'm doing. It's not weird. Even though I've got my hand on your Oak tree in the course of doing this, you are going to give your body the opportunity To become awake in ways that heretofore, just like any muscle, it has been shut down. If I'm on my phone as much as I am often on my phone, that's like I'm going to exercise one particular muscle group in my body, all the other muscle groups are going to get no action, and they're going to atrophy. If we are not paying attention to that physicality, remember that beauty is not an abstraction. Beauty is something that emerges first and foremost in the material world. And the degree to which I'm connected to my body is the degree to which I can be connected to beauty in the material world. And if I can't do either of those, I sure won't be able to be looking for beauty in the places that I hate the most.
0: Right. But I was thinking about somebody who's hearing this and they're saying, I want to recover— like, I, I believe you. I hear you. I, I want to recover um, not not just desire, but that desire that then ignites passion and creativity, like taking somebody back to that creative bent that they had at age 8, 9, and 10, and uh, they hadn't learned to be afraid yet, or they hadn't been fully distracted from their bodies or faced a lot of rejection in their creativity. What are some of the first steps where they can start to mobilize, activate, that creative bent, like even in the sense of community? How would that be ignited in community?
2: What I want to invite us to consider first and foremost is that this is to be done in community. Community is how it is intended to begin. And so the first question I would be, that would for me would be, who is the person that you're going to ask to join you in this work? I mean, this is exactly what Jesus is doing when he calls the disciples. Did he need disciples? Why couldn't Jesus just create his kingdom by himself he's asking for collaborators and if we're going to be like him if i'm going to create the first question i'm going to ask is who's going to be the person with whom i'm going to do this and that of course then begs the question of like well okay but like what do i say to them like you say like well i want to make something new in the world with my life and i'd like to do this with you but first of all i'm actually kind of like unsure about what it is that i even want to do so i'm going to ask you what's the new thing that you want to make and, of course, the other person is wondering, like, well, wait a minute. Like, you're the one who started this. Why can't I ask this question first? Because I don't know what I want to make. And then when we are with someone who can help us answer this, we discover that if somebody is able to say, like, well, tell me what you're afraid of such that it's having, you're having a hard time answering this question. Well, I'm afraid that if I name this that my husband or my wife is going to think this is silly. Or, you know, no, I tried that as a girl when I was a little girl. But, like, I'm, you know, I got, I got too many things I got to do. Which, of course, belies this notion that we believe that beauty is merely a luxury, as opposed to the very thing to which our lives are being drawn. And so I need someone else who can partner with me and ask, Kurt, what's the next artifact of beauty that you want to create? And I'm not here to be your examiner who's going to grade you. I'm here to be curious with you. I'm here to be Jesus' voice and his body and his face and say, I want to make stuff with you because these things that I want to make with you are the things that I have formed for you to make before the foundation of the world.
0: Okay, last two questions, quick answers, just whatever kind of comes to mind. Uh, What is the yes that changed the trajectory of your life?
2: One yes would be when I was 13. I, I would say that saying yes to Jesus when I was 13, number one, Number two would be saying yes to marriage to my wife, Phyllis, when I was 24. And um, and then, you know, there have been a lot of other, what I would say, a lot of other um, yeses that you think are like, oh, this is a small yes. But as it turns out, not unlike the way the mind operates, small doors can enter, can, can you know, open into very, very, very large rooms and, and what looks like a small yes to begin with becomes a very, very large yes, but it becomes large, not just because of myself and God, it becomes large because you open the door and my goodness, you walk in the room and there's Rebecca Lyons, there's Gabe <laughs> Lyons, there's these other people and you're like, holy cow, I didn't know that life could become so large when you're this much more connected to the people who come to find you, not least of which being, they come to find you even knowing the parts of you that you hate the most.
0: Wow, so good. Yeah, it's like you read my mind cuz I my second question was and maybe this is connected to that but a little bit of difference, more around the rhythms idea, but what is the yes that changed your every day? What was one of those yeses that shifted what each day started to feel like for you?
2: Well, I again, there 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 are there are several, but here's here's one that I'll that I will say is is continues to be very meaningful to me. And it is the yes of reading the scriptures very slowly. So, you know, um up until, you know, Monday, I was sitting in the 51st Psalm for about 2 weeks and in the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark for about 2 weeks, trying to allow what I was sensing and imaging and feeling to be ever more deeply embedded. In what I was imagining and thinking that would take that. You know, like, you know, you read the 16th chapter of Mark, and you know, it's just one series after another. When you read about the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and then nobody believes her. And then, you know, he and then this the, the story that you know it is told in Mark's gospel about the road to Emmaus, which we hear about in Luke's gospel, and like the, 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 nobody believes them. And I'm reading this over and over again, and I'm thinking, like, oh my gosh, this is me. Like he finds me on the resurrection day. And like, then there are parts about me that meet him and believe him. And then there's the parts about me that don't believe. And like, and and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is me. And I have to go back and be curious about what was it like to be Mary? What was it like to be the people on the road to Emmaus who told everybody else and they didn't believe him? What is it the part of me? What's the part of me that makes it so difficult, so hard to believe? That makes me like the father in Mark 9, I believe, help thou my unbelief. But I think, frankly that it's, that's something that like, I'm not going to pick up if I just read the 16th chapter of Mark on Thursday and move on to, you know, uh, Luke chapter one the next day. Mm-hmm.
0: It's your embodiment of scripture reading. And I love that. I love how you take the lens that all these different characters embody, and you are, you are having, practicing massive empathy to go, how do I do that? How do I display that? how do I display that? And I love that. Uh, well, Kurt, we could go on forever, as we know, and we will. We will talk a lot longer in November, so I'm so excited about that. Thank you for yeah. this work. Thank you for your perseverance in this uh, neuroscience field, uh, the the future and the hope of neuroplasticity, how our neural pathways of trauma can be healed and they can be integrated and put back together and work in synergy, and I, I think I just love the work you've done on the mind and— um, I'm just so thankful for your work, thankful for your love of Jesus and how evident that is and how tender you are to him and for displaying just the two of those things, science and faith in the fullness. And um, I can't wait to have another conversation with you soon. So thanks for being with us, Kurt.
2: Rebecca, always a pleasure. Thank
1: you so very much. Well, I enjoyed listening to that conversation. I wasn't able to be a part of that particular one, but there's so much there, so much depth. Kurt, his heart for people, for God's love for all of us to experience that. I mean, just hear it in his voice. And that's what's going to happen when we're together November 18 and 19 at the Harpeth Hotel here in Franklin, where we're going to have that experience together over two days at the Emotional Health Retreat, where Kurt will join us, and that's at com slash retreat.
0: Yeah, and what you'll leave with is a connection, a connection towards your longing, the beauty that God calls you toward, and in community. And that's what these retreats are for. It's it's not just learning in isolation. We love that you're listening to podcasts. We love that you're reading books. But when you can process this in a roundtable of community, there's just a there's a, a knowing that comes with that. Not, not just like kind of theory, but it becomes embodied, and that's what we're so excited about. So please join us. Forty percent of the tickets are already sold just from people hearing about this without us even marketing it or talking about it. So we do know it'll sell quickly. So if you're interested, go ahead directly to rebeccalliance.com slash ehretreat. And for all of you, um, whether or not you're coming to the retreat, please go to rebeccalliance.com slash livefree. Let's do these 52 days together. I'm so excited. I'm going to do some Instagram lives during these weeks together, talk about the themes each week that we're going through in community, again, because I truly believe that transformation happens one small step at a time. And it's definitely accelerated when you're walking that journey with a friend. We hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you again soon.